Welcome to SDSPA's 2023 podcast season. I'm your host, Laura Kaler. South Dakota Specialty Producers Association is made up of growers, consumers, and others interested in producing, marketing, and supporting South Dakota's specialty crops, meats, and locally made products. This podcast is made possible through a specialty crop block grant SDSPA received through the South Dakota Department of Ag and Natural Resources. This season, our podcast theme is Grown Here, how South Dakota producers are growing their specialty crops. Today, we're going to be looking at root crops like carrots, garlic, and potatoes, which you will be tending to throughout the season, but the most important growth is going to be happening out of sight and under the soil. Today, Dirk Oudman of Blue Sky Vegetable Co. and Darren Waldner of Waldner Farms are going to be sharing their processes to assure a healthy harvest of these root crops. Welcome, Dirk and Darren. Thank you both for joining us today. To get started, can you tell us all about your farms and which crops you're growing there? So my name is Dirk Oudman. My wife and I farm at Blue Sky Vegetable Company uh, in Worthing, South Dakota, just south of Sioux Falls. Um, we grow, this year we'll be at about four acres of produce. Uh, doing a 100-member CSA as well as some farmer's market. Um, root crop-wise, I mean, crop-wise, we, we tell everyone we grow everything. Um, I think we have 42 varieties of crops going in this year and then the, the different varieties of those crops. Roots, we do a heavy emphasis on beets and carrots, some turnips, some radishes, um, potatoes. Well, and, and my name is Darren Waldner. I... I... Uh, with Walner Farms out of Webster, South Dakota. I uh, farm with my wife and uh, a few of my other family members, my mom, and, and I got a couple little kids that are, that are coming up the, the, the worker to help with the work, I guess. Um, we've got probably about 10 acres that we put into production and rotate around, uh, do a lot of pumpkins, potatoes, uh, sweet corn. We do have a high tunnel. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that we do, um, quite the variety. And I've, I've been known to try just about growing anything. And it seems like you master one and, and you move on to the next one and, and it throws you another curveball. Uh, the root crop stuff we do, um, probably my favorite is, is the garlic. We, we grow a lot of garlic and that is in the ground growing already. There's, uh, potatoes, do a few carrots, um, some beets. So there's, there's plenty of root crops to be found in our garden, uh, along with uh, all the other fun stuff, the pumpkins and the sweet corn. So, Awesome. What do you guys think is the most challenging thing about root crops when compared to vegetables that are growing above the ground, like your peppers and tomatoes? Probably for us, um, weed control and germination are the biggest challenges with root crops. Uh, generally, a lot of our root crops are pretty slow to emerge, especially the beets and carrots, and trying to keep them weed-free. Uh, most of the things that grow above ground, we end up doing as transplants, not as direct seed. And so you're able to get that couple of week jump on the weeds, and that allows for a lot of easier cultivation technique. So root crops, really the big challenge we see is making sure that we're putting them into a really clean seed bed so that they have plenty of time to come up and mature. Most root crop plants are not the most vigorous or hardy. Uh, obviously, your, your turnips and your radishes are going to be more vigorous as far as how fast they come up and how um, aggressively they'll take cultivation. But, you know, carrots are pretty spindly for quite a while. So 
that's always our challenge is making sure we can keep things as clean as possible when those seeds are young, when they're just coming up so that, you know, once they've started to canopy over the bed that we don't have to come back and do a lot of hand weeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. The germination thing has been kind of uh, really tough for us. We've got, uh, I'm going to say a little bit heavier soils. So it seems like they'll, um, just when you think you've got it and you've kept everything moist and you'll, the germination just doesn't quite happen. And um, so that's, that's a tough one for us, you know, especially with the carrots and the, the radishes and stuff. The um, beets always seem to, to find a way to grow uh, up for us. They, they pop pretty easy and uh, getting that, you know, getting that initial blast of weeds um, knocked down is, is, is critical. Cause it seems like you can, if you can get that first shot of weeds taken care of, uh, usually the, the rest of them are pretty easy to stay on top of, um, with the potatoes and stuff there, that's a whole nother animal. Um, the carrots, like you said, are spindly and, and, uh, the potatoes, they, they grow fast and they're, they're kind of, they're tough to, you can be tough on them and, and while you're cultivating a little bit and they don't, they seem to tolerate it pretty well. Um, different pieces of equipment for, for each one of them. Um, you know, we've tried to implement different things. And so starting with the soil, what type of soil are you looking for with your root crops and what do you do to prepare your bed? Dirk, you said it's gotta be a pretty clean bed for the direct seeding. Yeah. So for us, we don't necessarily, our farm is pretty uniform as far as soil types. Um, it's all kind of a, mostly silt loam with a little bit of clay mixed in um so like darren said sometimes a little on the heavier side but there's not a lot of variation so it's not like there are certain fields we're looking to put roots into uh we last year invested in a spader which is a uh, a deep tillage machine so we go through with that for our first pass that'll kind of gently turn and loosen the soil about 12 to 14 inches down uh, and so that lets us avoid having to go through with a chisel plow or a mold board or anything, particularly for carrots, having that really deep uh, root zone is important for them to grow straight. If you end up, if you've got compaction six inches down, the carrots will hit that layer of compaction and they'll start to branch out sideways or they'll get twisted and they still taste fine, but they don't look quite as pretty on the stand uh, or in people's boxes. That makes sense. People want beautiful looking carrot. They do, right? I mean, we, we all grew up with uh, with Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny, so we all know what a carrot's supposed <laughs> to look like. <laughs> um, <Yep. laughs> so we'll hit the soil with a, with a spader first. Uh, then we'll come back. We do all our growing on raised beds for moisture management. Uh, I know that that seems strange in South Dakota where keeping moisture on the soil is such a, a challenge. But in the spring, we find that with the, the heavy rains we've been getting, it's easier to have a raised bed and know we'll get the drainage so that we can make sure at least that bed top is dry, both for direct seeding and then also for that early cultivation path. So we'll come through after the spader uh, with the same machine that we lay plastic mulch with, and we'll just form up bare ground raised beds with that. So all our beds are going to be a uniform size. Um, after we've formed up a bed, as long as the soil surface looks about how we want it to as far as aggregation uh, we'll come back through we'll hopefully we'll get some spring rain or some rain or some irrigation on that bed uh, 
We'll get the first flush of weeds out. We'll hit it with a basket weeder underneath the cultivating tractor to, to clear out that first flush of weeds. And then we'll come in and plant right after that. Is it much different on your farm, Darren? Actually, I the the raised bed thing, I we started doing that. And part of the, the reason we did it is is not so much the um, moisture. We're trying to control moisture, working with the moisture. That was a happy thing we found out afterwards. It, it worked nice because the they said that rain would run off those beds and they wouldn't you know, wouldn't be so saturated. And especially as those, you know, the carrots and the small, the, the small seed is so hard to, to manage in those beds. Uh, you know, you're not getting the wash uh, and they're not sitting in that moisture and rotting. Uh, they're germinating and running instead. But uh, yeah, we do the same. We do a very similar practice. Actually, uh, we use a, <clears throat> our bed shaper is a separate, um, was a separate tool and we just hook onto our bed shaper and we, we raise the bed, shape it, you know, probably put a three inch raise on it and um, work with it that way. So um, we usually shape it and plant, you know, sometimes right into it. Um, it's the nice fluffiness, I guess. And it, it, it seems to, to tolerate it better and, and uh, the plants like that. And then it allows for us to, to, you know, when we're bringing the tractor in, we've kind of got our, our lines marked so we can, we know where we got to be and, um, we do a lot of drip irrigation. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll just in that bed, usually we'll run four rows and we'll run us a, a drip between two and two so that we can, we can really control that moisture instead of soaking that center. We can kind of spread it out nice and evenly over that bed. And, uh, the carrots have always been my battle. I've, I fought carrots. Uh, I've tried so many different things with carrots. Um, but the, the beets and that stuff, um, seem to tolerate it really well. Uh, we do garlic too. Um, and one of our favorites, uh, garlic and the onions, um, we actually plant those into plastic. So we've got a, uh, a special drum that we use behind our mulch layer that, that basically pokes holes every, I want to say every four inches. And then it, it offsets, offsets it every two. Uh, so it's, it patterns that whole plastic. And then we, we poke everything in there and that, you know, once the garlic starts, you know, there's such a small hole in that plastic and the onions too, the onions start poking through it, it, it just chokes the weeds right out and we're able to control the moisture underneath there. And one of the fears I always had with that was the, the heat from that plastic would cook the, cook the onions and the garlic. And I don't know if it's just a function of where we're at, but we've, we've never had any problem with that. And our garlic and onions have always been really, really good, really strong, and we're not fighting that weed pressure. So, yeah. Okay. So you're doing drip to germinate too on those uh, on yes. those direct seeded roots. Are you yep, using yep. There's, twelve inch emitters or six or? I've got uh, I've gone to six actually, um, okay. especially with there's like the twelves I'll use on the like my tomatoes and peppers. Cause I've got two foot spacing mm -hmm. there and I try, <laughs> believe it or not, I try to really, if I can shuffle that, that, that drip tape underneath there to match my holes, it, it works really good. Um, and then I'm mm -hmm. not wasting so much underneath that plastic, but if I can get a heavier, um, you know, that six inch emitter with a, with a heavier soak, I, I have good luck with that. I tried, 
one year I tried it. I had a, uh, a one of those um, walking irrigators. The mm, uh, mm-hmm, I can't think mm-hmm. of what it is. Like a a water wheel, water wheel, reel. Yeah. And I even with the finest setting with that, it seemed like I couldn't I couldn't quite control the water good enough to to give them a chance. So our our drip tape was was with the way to go, and it's cheap. You know the the mm-hmm. cost of that drip tape is is really affordable when you start um talking about people walking around with uh, the watering wands and we we did that yeah. too you know when we first we first started there was the, you know that that was that that was our after work we'd get done with work five six o'clock and and there was about six of us that would meet out there um my folks and and some family friends and me and my wife and we would just we'd walk around dragging garden hoses with, uh, with watering wands and, and anything that was, I'm going to say a root crop, you know, and, and I, the lettuces too, but uh, the root crops, especially, uh, we kind of, we nurtured them along that way. So as we started losing, uh, I'm going to say manpower, we've, we've gone to that drip and I, I really, I like the way that profiles and, and the way that soaks the soil up. So do you, have you had problems with it or have you never tried that? Uh, we've never really done drip for germ because I always figured that those, the, the wet parts would be too far apart that you wouldn't get good even germination between, but I guess going to six inch, you get a pretty solid stripe of moisture. Yep. Yep. There's all the, all um, the way makes, down that drip. It does. And it, it, you, you, you start to think you're going to get that concentration, but it, it does spread it nice. And our, you know, you read on the soil profiles too, how that, that percolates through there. And, you know, for us, it works well. Um, I don't know, in a sandier location, you might have, you know, see those pockets, but you're not, it'd be worth a look this spring, or at least, you know, you try it on a row or two and and see what you think. Mm -hmm. But we've had, that's the only way we've, we've had a a good germination, um, you know, where we've got dry spells. The, mm-hmm. the best medicine is, is a nice rain that, that seems to always push them up. But the, uh, if we've got to make it some, uh, a synthetic rain, the drip is the way to go for us. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'll definitely have to try that this spring then. So now that it's obviously a few months or at least a few weeks from being able to get to your soil, what are you doing to plan for planting your root crops? Yeah, we we buy all our seeds um, about this time of year, mostly from supply issues. We find that if you wait till the last minute, inevitably the varieties you want are sold out. Uh, so we try and buy everything in a couple big chunks in January and February. That's in part also because as a CSA, that's when we have the cash flow to buy those things. And so we're not trying to, to stretch out our seed purchases. We can buy everything for the year in one chunk. Um, as far as planning, we have gone to not really using maps at all. We will plan out planting, succession planting, based on when we need crops to be ready for the CSA to put in the box. And then we plan out how much we'll need to plant, to, you know, and, and we'll put in our, our maturity dates, our, our DTM. Um, and then from there, you just kind of see how, how the soil is shaping up and, and see what looks dry or where we've got 
beds to turn over. We used to do a lot of mapping and inevitably my plan would get all screwed up by July. And so all that effort <laughs> mapping things out, it was just a waste of time. So yeah, we, we started moving to more of a kind of as needed. I know this week I've got to plant, you know, two beds of beets and a bed of carrots and three beds of lettuce. And, oh, look, you know, these, these beds over here are done or whatever. And so I just turn them under and get them ready to plant again. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's the planning you try in my mind, I, I kind of map it out, but it's, it seems like the weather just dictates so much where stuff goes. I, I try really hard not to be, you know, back to back to back on, on things in the same places. Um, but it, it just, yeah, you watch in the weather, you know, that you need this, you know, or I, I start with the early stuff and that, you know, the, the beets are always one that goes in first. Um, that's, that's a good root. And actually the potatoes, uh, we're planting one of the first things we put in the ground is our, is our potatoes. And, uh, you know, they may sit there a week or two, but then when the, the soil starts to really warm up, they take off and do their thing. But that's our gar our garden too. We're kind of in a, if you really look at it hard, it, we're in a kind of a bowl. There's a, uh, we've got a slough right in the center of it. So we actually, when we start planting, we start working around the outside edge and working closer and closer to that. I'm going to say that slough or that, that water is, as the ground kind of dries up and things kind of, you know, get back into shape or summer shape, I should say. So, um, look at that. Our seeds, we try to actually order our seeds by January one. Uh, the, the company we work with, um, ENR seed, they do, um, they get a lot of promotions uh, or it, the pricing is the best before January one. So that's when we order everything or try to at least the bulk of it. There's always a few, you know, Hey, we should try this or, Hey, we should try that. And, you know, we'll throw a few packs in there later in the year, but uh, um, now too, uh, we're, you know, I'm kind of starting to, to get the itch. So we're, we're pulling the equipment in, looking that over, making sure everything's kind of ready to go and, anything that needs a tweak or if we got to make another toolbar for the tractor or something that we want to try. Um, I really want to try the, the finger weeder on some stuff this year, you know, including the, the smaller root crops. And um, we did a rotary hole last year. We, we built that during this time and, and got things basically try to get everything ready. So when the, when the weather does finally give us a chance, we can get it and hit it running. So. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say there's a giant map uh, on paper somewhere of the garden with, with everything and nice, neat rectangles that, that I can say, yes, the beets will be here and the, the, uh, the, the corn there and the potatoes there, but it just, it never, it never seems to, to, to work out. And, and you probably relate, Dirk, you, you get out there and you're, you know, everybody's kind of standing around you ready to, to get working and you're, you're just kind of, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that goes there. Yep. Yep. Over there. Yep. That'll work. Just get it in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Just, just get it in well, the ground. So, right. Well, and so much of it is dependent on, you know, for us, we're, we're trying to do a decent amount of double cropping. Right. And so, you know, it really depends. Like if you get one cutting off a bed of arugula, or if you're trying to get three cuttings, you know, so you're out there kind of looking at stuff and saying, well, I need to plant this next week and oh, this one's done anyways. I'm going to rip it up and, and put something else in that same spot. For us, we mm -hmm. always try to reuse beds again. Um, 
rather than move to a new spot. And then for our farm, we try and do a year on year off rotation. So we'll work one section really hard, you know, for, for the year, we'll try and double crop it. And then we'll put that into a full year cover crop the next year. Um, and generally something that a winter kill. So we'll put it in, you know, maybe by June, we'll put it into a cover crop mix and then let it go all year, mow it a few times and knock it down. Um, and that's, I mean, that's also, you know, to help with that, the weed seed bank as well. Cause that way you're getting a more long season smother on some of those weeds. Yep. Yep. And there's, there's pockets like, you know, like our first, it seems like once we're done with something in a spot, we generally don't, unless it's a lettuce or something, I don't go back over the top of it. We'll always, we'll always put, uh, put a cover crop in. I, I really like doing the cover crop thing and, um, it seems the soil really seems to appreciate it. So why not? Um, that's, yeah, I don't know any other, you know, what, what else you would want to do with it. Um, yeah. I think that hearing that you don't have to overplan is reassuring for anyone listening who does like that same idea of just go out there and get a feel for it and make it work. Planting a garden is, is a lot like daydreaming. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful pastime while you can't do it, but it seems like the reality sets in really fast come spring. (laughs) Uh, When, when we started, yeah, everybody got really concerned about crop rotations, right? That was a big thing. Make sure you didn't follow plant families and other plant families for diseases and soil nutrition and all that. And it's important, but that's very much a secondary thing, right? And, and we had some mentors this last year and we're, you know, cause we're on a, a new piece of ground and we were talking to them and I was a little concerned about, you know, how are we going to rotate this stuff? And they're like, they told us, you know, they've been farming for 15 years, I think. And they said, you know, the first couple of years, just plant where you need to plant and then worry about your rotation. Once you kind of settled in, you know, you're not going to build up. It's not like two years of beets in the same ground is going to cause disease issues necessarily it, it's once you start to really repeat that year after year after year and those first couple of years until you get a feel for your for your ground and your operation there's there's just so much other things to worry about that it's that it's not really worth the uh the mental space right trying to think through this perfect crop rotation yeah there's there's so many things to balance like it, you really start dissecting it down and and i agree i the first year um you know, everybody, we were talking about potatoes and stuff and, you know, the potato bug is a, is a big one that they, you know, they want you to rotate, you know, don't plant it on, plan on, don't plant your potatoes on where your potatoes have been. And, uh, we, we planted our potatoes and, and this, our ground was, you know, hasn't had potatoes on it probably ever. And, and potato bugs were there, you know, they, they just showed up. So it's, I don't, you want to be conscious of it but i i don't think uh making that the whole focus is is a good use of time because there's so many things that 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 you need to balance so Mm -hmm. timing and getting things in early is 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 more important to me than than making sure that uh you know the beats weren't here last year so but i i do keep in the back of my mind i try but it's not that's not my number one objective. Mm-hmm. 
So going back to something that you can plan, when you're buying your seeds, do you guys typically buy the same thing every year? Do you do a lot of that experimentation or what are you looking for in the varieties that you're buying? Ours is, we, we find the, the tested and true ones um, that do well in our soil and, and we run with them. I try to keep the same list and, and I work off of it. I got a great big Excel sheet that I, you know, I, I put all my numbers in there and my cost of everything. And that's, that's what I run with when I order, or, you know, how much did I use last year? So that's all in there for me to kind of track. So I like things that have worked. And part of that, I, I kind of pulled from, you know, my, my grandpa's old database of, of stuff. And, and that works really well for us. I do, I do dabble once in a while um, with a different variety. You know, we've been, we've kind of had some battles in the, in the high tunnel with stuff and that's, I've changed varieties in there, but the beets and the, the potatoes and the, you know, our, our crop, our, our root crops are, are, I would say, I don't think we've changed any of that since uh, we started really gardening the uh, garlic, you know, we produce our own garlic seed. That's, that's the beauty of garlic. Uh, I'd say probably 10 to 20 pounds of, of our garlic that we produce, we, we hold back and basically the stuff that isn't as pretty, that's what we plant in the fall for, for our crop in the spring. And that's, you know, so we're not changing that variety either. And that, that variety every year we replant it gets more acclimated, more acclimated to our soils. And it seems like it does better and better every year. So that's how I approach it or we've approached it. And it's, it seems to work for what we're doing. Yeah, for us, we will do a little bit of experimenting with different varieties um, based on what it seems like the market is looking for. Um, but a lot of times there's a lot of, I find there to be a lot of distraction in doing fun or interesting, right? Especially on root crops. I think with, with some crops like tomatoes, maybe there are different varieties that people are interested in, but I they make all these different colors of carrots, right? And people are interested, but people also just want orange carrots. So we try and stay, we try and stay mostly with uh, a couple of, yeah, like Darren said, a couple of tried and true varieties. I know for storage carrots, Bolero is kind of the, uh, you know, the crown jewel of the, the vegetable world for doing storage carrots, especially in a, in an organic system. Um, and for beets, I don't know. I trust the seed catalogs. You know, they're doing a lot of research and trials and on-farm stuff. And if they say, oh, we like this one better than one that I've used before, like I'll, I'll give it a shot. Sure. Um, because, because mm -hmm. that's their job, right? Their, their job is to tell me as a grower, what the best carrot or beet variety is going to be for, for the conditions that we're experiencing. Um, some stuff you switch from year to year. If you didn't, you know, if you grow something and you say, oh, I didn't really like how that turned out. Then we'll just try a new variety. A lot of the, uh, like the brassica roots, like some of the specialty turnips and stuff, we're not growing enough that we're really depending on them for, you know, maximum productivity. And so that, you know, if we grew, if we grew one scarlet variety last year and we didn't really like how it turned out, it was kind of woody. And we said, all right, try a new one, you know, and we'll just jump to a different variety. But that's because scarlet turnips are not necessarily, you know, the, the bulk of our root sales or the bulk of what people want. So something small like that, you can play around a little bit more with new varieties. It, it's, you know, really reassuring or wonderful to hear that you hit that same wall and, 
like you said, it's, it's cool to have, you know, something different, like a, like a different colored carrot, but for some reason it, it, it looks good on the stand and it looks interesting, but it doesn't seem like the, the people gravitate to it like you would expect them to, you know, you're excited about it because you grew it, but the people that are putting their salad together, that's, you know, that color of carrot isn't going to work for them. So it, it, it's the tried and true. It's, it's always been, you know, they've always outproduced or outsold, you know, something different or something that, uh, that I think would be kind of neat. So I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> Glad I, I'm not I, alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a year when we did nearly all heirloom tomatoes and I remember going to market, you know, and everybody would stop and be so excited about all these neat tomatoes we had. And then they'd go to yep. the guy next door to me and buy red tomatoes because that's what they wanted, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so we learned our lesson and we started planting more red tomatoes. The heirlooms are yep. pretty, but they're not necessarily what people want. And and why is that? I, I just it's crazy to me. I mean, and even you know, you'll eat them like, well, that's the fun part of gardening. Like you're actually being the one producing it because you're out there trying it and tasting it versus, versus everything uh, out there. I've, you know, the, the first I granted when we first planted beets, the first one I grabbed was bull's blood beets just because it said bull's blood. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll try it. And I've tried different varieties, but I always go back to the bull's blood because it, it's, it just, it's a nice beet and people buy it. Um, mm-hmm. Same with our radishes. I did one, uh, it was like a variety pack uh, and it had a bunch of different colors in it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to look cool. Nope. Everybody reached and grabbed the old school radishes. They didn't want the, all the different colored ones. And, and I think, what did they, I didn't even remember what it was called, but um, yeah, it's just funny. <laughs> um, so you need just enough to get people to stop at your stand, but then have the old yep. traditionals mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sugar snacks, that was one of my, I do like the sugar snacks carrot, but it, it doesn't seem like that one's a tougher one to grow for me. That's, that's mm, the one mm-hmm. I like, but I can't, I can't ever get it to, uh, to really, I, I probably get 70% germination out of it and it drives me up the wall. So, um, but that's one of my favorites, but that is Bolero, right? Yeah. No. Yep. Yep. Bolero. I, I, we've planted that one too. And that without, we've actually done pretty well with that one. So that one seems to want to grow. So then what are you doing when you're planting your seeds? What does that look like? You kind of talked about it a little bit before, but do you have anything to add about how you plant your seeds for root crops? You bet. I'll, I'll keep running. Um, I, it's, we've done it probably three, four, I've tried three or four different things. And I, I've, the first thing we did, uh, when we planted it, we, we actually started with pelleted seeds. Uh, a lot of our root crops, cause you know, like the, uh, the carrots are a small seed, you know, the, the, the beets are kind of that goofy, I almost want to say fuzzy, but they've got a different, you know, they they don't look like a regular seed. Um, so we could get our carrots, the pelleted seed, and then we get, um, you know, our beet stuff because it's it, a little bit easier to meter. So I was using um, an old John Deere 71 planter with with beet plates and and it worked. It worked OK, uh, did did a decent job. And, you know, part of the gardening thing for me was, was trying to get some of this old equipment to work, but uh, quickly discovered that that wasn't really wasn't really our wasn't as effective as it needed to be because we had problems with depth control but 
Um, then uh, we tried a, uh, we've actually got a, a Jang Cedar and uh, we use that one quite a bit. Um, that's, that's been, that's been really good to us. Um, really good control, the depth, it meters things really nice. And it's, it's a cost-effective tool, even if, you know, if you were a serious hobbyist, you could, you could almost talk yourself into, into a Jang Cedar. Um, and then uh, lately, and, and Dirks, you're really going to love this. Um, <laughs> we took, uh, I was, I was so frustrated with my carrots. I took a, uh, the paper pots. We actually started last year, uh, doing carrots and beets and starting them in paper pots and transplanting them. And, uh, that was, we had some that did very, very well. And some of them that didn't do well at all. And the, the ones that didn't do well were the ones that the soil, we didn't quite have the soil perfect for it. And I think there's, there's, there's some other growers out there that have, have thought about doing the paper pot transplanter and they, uh, they'll say the same thing that's that's common with that is is you got to make sure your your bed is is right otherwise you're going to have a problem and make sure that that machine is set so those are those are kind of our three we've even we've even done some hand seeding too um you know old school with uh with a hole but uh the uh jank seeder is probably my preferred method right now and then uh in a close second would be that paper pot transplanter especially if we're having you know, you know, late start, but I'll probably run two or three. I'll, I'll try to do one, uh, 100 foot roll of, of carrots. And, and by a roll, I mean a bed. And so there's four, so there's, it'd be 400 feet of carrots with that paper pot transplanter. And then I use the tight cells and it, it just, you know, being able to control that moisture, uh, sitting on the bench is, is so much nicer compared to trying to do it outside in the, in the soil. And, again, they tolerate, they tolerate that transplanting very well. <laughs> so it, it's one thing I do to ensure I've got carrots midway through the year and I'm not, I'm not, you know, a total crop failure, um, with it and the beets and all that stuff. So. Are you getting straight carrots with a, I've always heard with the paper pot and the carrots, some people had issues with the, the carrots kind of forking or branching because that taproot hits the, the bottom of the cell before you can get them out. I didn't, you know, and, and that was the ones, the ones that didn't do so good were this, I, I, we didn't have it prepped right. The beds weren't perfect. Uh, where we had the beds perfect and we, we transplanted them early enough, they took off and they shot straight down and they were, you know, mm -hmm. really nice looking carrots. So there's, mm -hmm. you really, really got to dial in your timing with the paper pots if you're going to do a root crop. Um, the radishes didn't care so much. The, uh, the beets didn't care so much, but the carrots, if, if you were off in your bed or your timing, you got a little long and they, you know, you start to see that root running on the bottom. You're right. Mm -hmm. It would, it wanted to, it wanted to kick them and you had, you had right angle carrots, which are wonderful in a soup, but you got, yeah, right? you know, they, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants them. Nobody wants them on the stand if they're not long and straight like bugs bunnies. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would second the Jang 100%. We we've used an Earthway. Um, we actually switched once we got a Jang. We switched back to non-pelleted seeds um, because with those with those Jang rollers, you can get rollers that'll singulate 
we found we were able to singulate well enough to do raw carrot seed. And uh, I like to have the options, right? Because some of the varieties that I really wanted to try were not necessarily available and in, in pelleted all the time or the pellets would sell out. Um, yep. And so, so we switched to all raw seed. We also had some issues, not, not recently, but at the beginning we would have some issues on not being able to get enough moisture down to break the pellet open, you know, not being able to keep yep. that pellet wet enough to let the seed emerge. Um, so yeah, we do the Jang. Last year, we started putting down a seed treatment with our seeds, not a, not a chemical, but a biological stimulant for germination. Um, and it's anecdotal, right? We're not scientists, so we didn't necessarily take measurements off of it. But I, anecdotally, it, it really helped us with our germination on, on uh, spinach, beets, and carrots, all three of those. We had much better success getting a, a nice, straight, even germination off of them than we have historically you know my wife and i have been so used to, to mediocre germination on beets that we just always overplant. you know assuming all oh, well 20 to 30 percent won't come up <laughs> and then last year yep. man we just had all the beets come up and then I, we had beets coming out our ears which is not a bad problem <laughs> to have no but yeah i'll produce it right that's that's the key that's one of the games let's yeah if i need 100 let's plant 200 just to make sure <laughs> yeah uh, well and especially when you're not too tight on space right it's easy to say ah we'll just fill up an extra quarter acre and plant some more stuff yeah there's room right over there we'll make a spot we'll make a spot <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, then you get to market and you got six boxes of it and oh man nobody wants beets anymore come on guys <laughs> <laughs> Here, put them in the pot. You got to grill them. Have you ever tried grilled beets? Oh, that's a great way to eat beets. Oh, raw beets? Yeah, that's good too. We'll have, have uh, Aunt May pickle some for you. That's even better. Uh, it's good to not be alone. <laughs> you can swap beet recipes too. There you go. <laughs> what about potatoes? What do you get is doing to get your potatoes started and growing? I, so our, I'm actually, I'm pretty fortunate. We do a, uh, we go up into North Dakota and we actually buy a thousand pounds of seed potatoes and we'll get, we do 400 pounds of, of Yukon golds, 400 pounds of, of reds, and then uh, 200 pounds of uh, russets. And actually I'm, I'm almost ready to give up on the russets. I, I like a russet, but people are, aren't too excited about it, but um, when we buy our seed, instead of buying like a bag, a five pound bag at a grocery store, we're actually getting a size B seed potato. So it's, it's pretty simple for us. Uh, we've got a planter. Uh, my grandpa used it for, for years and years and years. And then I got parked in the trees. Uh, it was a two roll. So he had a bigger tractor, but I've got a, a little bit smaller tractor. And so we ended up cutting this, this two row planter up and this was part of the prep about five years ago we cut this two row planter into a one row planter and that's what uh, we used to stick it in the ground and what I do is I have uh, the neighbor he's got some heavier tillage equipment he comes in and really uh, cultivates it deep so we can get you know start getting our hilling and stuff done uh, or once we start planting uh, everything is nice and soft and easy to work in and then we run the cultivators, we got mechanical cultivators, and then 
uh, one thing we did last year is we ran the rotary hole over the top of them to keep that first shot of weeds uh, down. And it, that did a, a phenomenal job with it. And then cultivating them and, and, you know, about every, you know, once every week, at least it, it seemed like we stayed ahead of it. But for us, it's just right now waiting, you know, waiting for the ground to, to, to cooperate and we'll, we'll get our potatoes and get them in the ground and, and be on the way. So, um, yeah, I, I actually got it pretty easy with my potato stuff, the crop. That's honestly one of the easier ones for me to do. Um, that one I do pay, I try to really pay attention, you know, in the rotation, you know, that in the sweet corner, the two that I, I like to rotate around. I don't like to plant potatoes where I had potatoes the year before, but that's an easy one because that's the first one, one of the first things that we plant. So. Are you digging your potatoes by hand or you have a digger? We've got a digger. We, uh, last year, uh, you'll, you'll love this. Uh, there was an old horse drawn digger that we used for the first probably three years. And, uh, we were digging and digging and, and it was fun until I, I, I put it, I, I ran it off the three point, you know, to keep the height right. Mm-hmm. And it, and it worked really well, uh, except when the weeds would start to, to get wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I found was, is you go and, and, if you're going to dig a row like that night, so our markets are on Tuesday. So, so Monday night, what I would do is I'd come in with a rotary mower and I'd, I'd mow it. And then, um, either, either Sunday night or, or Monday, and then we dig them Tuesday or, or Monday night. So, you know, kind of let that stuff dry down a little bit. And then it would go through that, that digger really, really easily. Um, if I didn't do that, it would just ball up and we'd have a problem, but there was an old horse drawn mm-hmm. digger we used. And then last as two years ago, we, we hooked, uh, hooked a rock with it and I broke it. I broke the chain on it and I ended up ordering, um, a speedo potato digger. And that's been a phenomenal little tool. Um, does a wonderful job. We did a, you know, last year got to the fall and we probably had half of our potato crop left out there. And I just, we kind of threw a message up on Facebook and said, Hey, if you're, you're interested in potatoes, uh, come on out, we're going to dig them on Saturday. And I just, I jumped in the tractor and we dug, dug all the potatoes we had and, and picked them all up and people came out and they were, you know, getting 50 pound boxes and, and away they go type deal. So Mm -hmm. it was, it worked really, really well. And, and, uh, again, it, it, our stuff is, is really dialed in and, and, mechanized because the labor thing is so hard for for us to find um you know people to help us so we anything i can do to mechanize something is is money and time well spent so yeah no i i hear all that you're saying about that so our experience with potatoes uh, we've got kind of two different experiences so we moved to south dakota two years ago and, and the farm we were on before that had had a full lineup of, of small scale potato equipment. So we had, you know, a tractor mounted planter. It was a uh, one that you sat on and had to put the put the slips yep. for the, the chunks in the ground. Um and then we had oh I think we had a side dresser and then we had a, a two row digger, a speedo digger. And yeah, same experience you had, you know, if you could keep those rows clean, it was dreamy. And then as soon as you got you got grass or thistles in those rows, Oh, the the greens would just ball up on the chain. You'd dig it and it'd be loose, and then you'd still have to sift through it all by hand to try and find the potatoes underneath. Um, 
And so, yeah, we cultivation was always kind of a nightmare with that. I mean, potatoes are nice to cultivate because like you said, they'll, they'll take such an aggressive cult. You know, you can hill them, you can run fingers over them. You can run, you know, we ran those Lilliston weeders with the, uh, yep. with the metal, the metal tines. We'd run those on them and, and the potato plant will just, it'll look banged up. You know, you'll finish cultivating. You'll think, Oh, I just ruined it. I just destroyed that crop. And then, you know, three days later, they're back up, you know, the new leaves coming on and the weeds are all dead. But, so once we moved to South Dakota, uh, we left all that equipment behind. So now we're doing it the old-fashioned way, <laughs> you know, walking up and down yep. rows, putting putting potatoes in the ground, and then trying to hill them back up. We've got hilling discs on the tractor, so at least we'll, we're building our hills with a tractor. And then, uh, yeah, coming through with a potato fork or a broad fork and digging them. Um, oh man, we're not doing we're not doing that many potatoes right now. You know, I'd maybe shoot. I don't know. Last year, maybe we did. 500 or a thousand pounds, you know, okay. um, but, but even with those speedo diggers, you know, like at the end of the day, you're still picking up all those potatoes one at a time, you know, or three at a time by hand. I always had a dream, you know, of actually getting one of those, those, those potato diggers that dig it and then dump it right into a bin, you know, but we never quite yep. got to the scale <laughs> where we could, where we could justify one of those. So, and I, I'm and trying to think of a variety, way to build one. How to... <laughs> yeah. And variety-wise, we, similar to you, we'll do reds and golds. We'll do some russets. We'll do some whites, typically. And then uh, we do a decent amount of fingerlings. We have found that that's a potato product that we can do at a competitive price point to what you find at the store. Potatoes are really mm-hmm. hard to sell locally because... You know, if, you, if you're digging by hand or, or digging with a little side discharge digger, you know, you, you just can't beat the price that they can do them for with, with a big machine, um, you know, because of the cost of labor and, and the economies of scale. So for us, like fingerling potatoes and new potatoes are two products that we really find that the extra labor we can we can get paid back for because people are willing to pay more. You know, so, so we can get pretty easily $3 a pound on fingerling potatoes you know, because that's a pretty similar price to what they'll have in the store. Whereas, you know, to try and sell your, your normal potatoes at two or $3 a pound, you know, a lot of people kind of blanch at that and say, well, a red potato is a red potato. What makes yours so special? So yeah, we've leaned more into specialty varieties, leaned away from russets, leaned away from, from Yukon gold. The red, they're still a nice potato to have. People like red potatoes, and and for a CSA box, it's nice to have the reds. Um, more so probably than the bigger ones because the reds are easier to just to put into dishes for people, you know. So, yeah. So hopefully someday I'll move back to the world of uh, tractor planters and tractor harvesters for potatoes. But right now, just doing it the old-fashioned way. Oh. Yeah. You've got, and but you you hit the nail on the head. I I can produce it with the tractor and stuff. Excuse me. Um, you know where I can get to. You know where I'm looking at a buck a pound is usually like our reds and Yukon golds, and we can we can crank out enough where where that that makes sense for us to do it. And it doesn't take us long. And we'll take you know we'll take 400 pounds of potatoes to to the market every time. So and and usually they're gone. So that, but the fingerlings, you know, that I've never thought about doing that. Um, the other one I get asked for a lot are the sweet potatoes, but I, 
I can't imagine the manpower for a sweet potato. It's just something I haven't, I haven't got the courage yet to try. So. I think you can run sweet potatoes through, through one of those diggers. I've seen guys do I, it. I have not done it myself. And I think you can too. And but the only, the problem I had is actually getting them to start growing. I have, mm, I have yeah. tried a few times getting them to grow and I've fought and fought and fought and I've, I've listened to the good old boys and they, you know, they give me their, their ideas on it. And I, I just, I haven't seen the, haven't seemed to found the right formula yet. Hmm. Are you doing them on plastic or bare ground? I did. Those are all bare ground. I have, I haven't okay. dabbled with, with anything, uh, potato wise on, in that stuff. So. Well, cause I, I'm not sure we get enough heat units to do sweet potatoes on on bare ground i would be surprised at least i know where we were in wisconsin which is which is a zone warmer than here any sweet potato production anyone was doing was on plastic just to just to get all the solar units they could get into the potatoes i never even thought of that and actually you're you know you being you know down where you're at versus even where i'm at i'm i'm behind you in, in heat units too right so i i would i would i would probably be part of the problem so maybe the plastic, you know, we do a, uh, we've gone to a solar or not solar, but a uh, photodegradable plastic that might be mm-hmm. the, might be worth looking at there, but I can about imagine what that would look like balled up inside the potato digger. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, shoot. I, I bet we'd be digging that out for days, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you know, where you can, you can get a premium on a, on a local sweet potato um, that might be worth something looking worth looking at at least the, um, mm-hmm. I know my, my clientele and everybody that comes and sees me, they, they, they love the the local potatoes and they'll, they know the difference. They, mm-hmm. they will come to me and they will say every time that, Hey, there is nothing better than a potato dug out of the ground today. And, you know, when we eat them too, there's, you know, you pull a red out of the ground the same day and eat it it tastes different than the one that was done in the store and and i've i'm fortunate to to have people that recognize that so um you know there for a while too the market prices were so high on potatoes uh, they were actually there was i had a few a few little ladies come up and tell me that i was i was too cheap with my potatoes so i i said well just just enjoy it and, and get your fill buy extra then is what i told them i think so yeah <laughs> but no all good i just yeah i like the sweet potato idea i will i will look into that actually that's well that's and we're gonna try that this year we're gonna buy buy in slips and put them on plastic we've always kind of avoided it before um and yeah it's just we we really like to do a fall storage share and having sweet potatoes for that it's just that's really something people like to have they like to have plenty of and and it's a fall really in people's minds it's a fall crop you know yeah and, and so if you can say oh yeah we've got sweet potatoes available you know then, then people really people really go for that i think nice there's yeah there's it there's kind of a there's a group of people that are there not i'm say a group of people but there's a a new thing and i and there are more and more people i'm finding that are are stocking up on the potatoes, they're stocking up on the onions, um, you know, those things, and they're actually putting them in their basements and, and eating on them till, 
you know, January, February, where normally that wasn't, that wasn't the case. It seems like there's more and more of that, that are starting to, you know, that trend is starting to happen again, which is, it's, it's good. So. Mm -hmm. Throughout the growing season, um, what pests and growth, growth problems do you come across and what are you doing to address that? For me, in my, I mean, and I'm going to well, go, go ahead. No, the, well, I'm the, in my root crops, there's always, you know, probably the biggest one that I fight with is the potato bugs. Um, that's, that's probably my, my, my meanest, uh, meanest one. And, and my cousins tell me that when grandpa was fighting with them, he'd actually walk every row, look at every single plant, uh, to find them. And, uh, he'd, uh, he'd take the plant and he'd pull the leaves off, you know, he'd basically take that whole plant and, and go over to the burn barrel and throw it in the burn barrel. Um, just, just because he, you know, there's, there's not a lot you can do with a potato bug. The, uh, the pesticides and stuff are pretty harsh for them. So you just kind of try and try and avoid it. So, but, or try and catch it early is about all you can do. So, um, that's the big one for me is, is the potato bugs and, um, yeah, that that's the one I always watch out for. Yeah, I, I'd agree 100%. Uh, the potato beetles are really, they're heartbreaking. You know, some, especially, you know, the first couple of years we were farming and, and didn't necessarily have a great handle, you know, on, on some of our systems or what to watch out for. I, I still remember one year, you know, we had a big field of potatoes we'd put in and we'd had quite a bit of lamb's quarter come up in it. And, uh, you know, I was out there one day checking out how the plants were growing you know we we're gonna start digging for new potatoes pretty soon and i got out there and realized that what i had thought was a beautiful field of potatoes was actually a beautiful field of lamb's quarter and the beetles had just you know shredded the potato plants down to the ground so and they do yeah, they, I, I, they do and they'll just still decimate it i left so, for two days and i got the phone call mom mom called me and she said the bug the potato bugs are bad in the potatoes and i'm like Oh shoot. Well, I was tied up. I couldn't get back. And by the, you know, in two days time, they had, yeah, there was nothing left. Yeah. Yeah. And ever since then, you know, ever since that experience, anytime, you know, we, we see the potato beetles where I, you know, normally we're fairly conservative when it comes to spraying things to kill pests. Um, and we do, I mean, we do follow organic systems, but even with organic stuff, we're pretty, you know, I'd rather, take a little bit of crop loss but with potato beetles we don't mess around anymore so we have started a, a regimen of uh ah, it's like a bacteria i think it's a, it's an organic certified it's an omri listed insecticide uh bovaria bassania i think and you can spray it on you basically just spray it on every two weeks and and it colonizes the leaves of the potato plants and then when the the beetles go to eat it. Um, I'm not sure exactly the method it uses, but it kills them real quick. You know, hmm. uh, by ingesting that. I think that colonizes them from the inside. And so we we've started to just start to apply that when we first see the uh, the potato beetles cropping up in the crop, because you know, like most organic insecticides, it's it's more preventative than it is uh, reactive, right? Like it like it'll help to keep them from spreading but it's not the same as a commercial insecticide you know where it just 
knocks them down in one shot. Um, so we started doing that. Every once in a while, we'll use like a pyrethrum on them, pyganic, yep. uh, which is a, a big knockdown, you know, insecticide. But again, I'm always hesitant to use a, a broad spectrum insecticide because, you know, for for every bad bug you're killing, you're killing something else. And then eventually you throw your whole system, you know, your natural system out of whack. And then, you know, generally the pests are more aggressive than the good ones. So if you kill off all of it, then the, the, the bad ones come back quicker. Yep. Yep. Um, besides potato beetles, a, I agree with Darren. There's not, there's not much else to worry about for our root crops. I've, I've tried the, the pyrethin has worked really, really well, but you know, there's a lot of, you know, commercial pesticides that were misapplied and, and that's, <clears throat> they had a lot of problem with, you know, building up resistance with those potato beetles and that's the pyrethrin. It, it's been, that's been good um, for me. And like I said, you, you get started early on it. The, the, the ounce of prevention is, is, is worth so much more as a cure than uh than waiting till it's a problem you know if i i I don't i don't like to do anything uh unnecessarily but if if a guy can keep ahead of it it seems to just make things a lot better so Mm -hmm. so assuming that you have a good amount of crop at the end you've got past the pests and the growth what are you doing for harvesting and cleaning your product for the market yeah, for me, on like I'm gonna say a lot of my root stuff. I don't, I don't wash a lot of it. I, I kind of, I, some of it we do. Um, we've got a vegetable washer that we use. Um, the potatoes for sure. I don't wash. Um, I just leave them. They seem to keep better if they're not washed, and that's that's what I've I've done. Uh, everything we do is pretty much by the pound. So our um, you know, we knock the, the, the dirt off and if, uh, if we have to rinse the mud off a little bit, but, uh, if, if we can get by without doing it, it just, I, I feel like the product lasts longer, especially if the people aren't going to eat it right away. So that's, that's kind of been our, our thought process. Um, and the, it, it's, it's working. I haven't had any complaints yet. So there's people out there that said dirt dirt's good for you. I, I don't know. Some days I wonder, but <laughs> it's, that's the, that's the, the model we've run with so far. Yeah. Real similar for us. Um, I think if we do anything bunching, you know, fresh, fresh bunches with the tops on in the summer, we might, if too much dirt comes up with the crop when we're pulling it out of the field. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll give it a quick rinse with a hose and let them dry off. Uh, for us, part of that is to get a little extra water on the crop, especially with the greens. We're throwing them, we're putting everything in boxes in the summertime. And so a little bit of extra water on the roots and on the greens keeps those greens from wilting too quickly while they're waiting for people to come pick them up. Um, but then for storage, yeah, we're storing. So so when we dig our storage roots in the fall, we'll store them all dirty. Uh, just like Darren said, they they seem to store way better. And then we'll bring them out. Uh, when we're sending them in in the winter time, we try and wash them up just because uh, it makes them present a little bit better. And and sometimes you know, beets without beets without tops, you want to make them nice and shiny so that people are like, oh, that's a nice looking beet. You know, so they're not going to be distracted by the greens. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll run those through a we'll run this through a brush washer primarily, 
I know people have used those barrel washers on roots and I, I've just never liked them that much. They always seem like a lot of effort. <laughs> but, but. And ours, our barrel washers have been good to us. I mean, we got that. It's been, it's been good. So I, I've actually never, I've never been exposed to anything other than the, the barrel washer. So I, I, my knowledge is pretty limited, but that's like, I'm going to say our cucumbers, like when we wash cucumbers and stuff for picklers, that's one that, that goes in there and then the beets too, and the carrots, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's, if we, if we can get by without washing it, it, uh, it's a good thing. It, it saves on our labor. It, you know, we could drive the price up by having to wash it, or you could take it home and rinse it off in your sink and be, be probably both money ahead and then have a fresher product when you're done too. So, well, that presentation is important. And I, I mean, a guy can't get, I don't, you don't want to be sloppy with it, but I try and find that delicate balance is what we kind of shoot for. Well, and that really depends on your, on your client base, you know, and uh, I mean, again, we've, we farmed in some different places. I know when we were selling produce into Chicago, there was a, a very different level of cleanliness expected out of the produce right i mean we we actually got a couple of complaint emails about how dirty our potatoes were the the first year we were doing it. so then that's when we started you know washing everything because that's mm-hmm. i mean very much based on feedback right like if, if people say hey we want this cleaner then it's your job as a grower to clean it up but until then i agree if, if they're not asking for it if it's not adding value to the customer then you're just wasting your time mm-hmm Great thoughts. Do you guys have any other overall um, thoughts or ideas that you want to make sure to mention today for root crop growing and selling? <clears throat> I nothing. I, I, you know, not really. I guess you know. I I don't really have anything extra. Um, I everybody's going to do it different. You know, listening to to Dirk talk about it. Um, you know, my methodology is a little different and, and the things that I'm doing that are successful might not be successful for somebody else. You just, it's something you got to just like everything you got to get in and try it. And, and some years the plan is, is great. Um, but the next year you might have a completely different spring and, and be fighting a, a completely different set of problems. So, um, best advice is, is, is the seed is the cheapest thing you can, you can buy and buy plenty of it, put it in the ground and see if you can make it grow. Great. Oh man, you, you stole my line. <laughs> seed is cheap. <laughs> That's what I always say. <laughs> That's my grandpa said that one. So I stole it from him first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think the one thing I'd, I'd want people to know is, it seems like a lot of young farmers starting out are kind of scared of root crops, um, particularly at storing root crops, you know, p- potatoes or storage beets or storage carrots. And I understand, but also that seems to really be a segment of the market that's just no one's really accessing. You know, every a lot of young growers are doing the, the greens, the high dollar salad mixes, the specialty greens, the microgreens, and and it's flashy, but there's a lot of money to be made in in roots. And I, it's not as exciting, right? It's not as exciting to just sell people carrots at 80 cents a pound or whatever. But 
you know, if you can sell them 10,000 pounds of carrots, he's still making good money on that. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of young growers ignore, ignore roots probably, you know, to their own detriment. Cause it, it's one of the easiest crops to, to get in front of people because it stores better than, than greens. You, it's very simple that, you know, you can harvest a couple hundred pounds of something and keep it in a cooler and sell it as people want it, you know, as, as opposed to lettuce, which you have a really short turnaround time on, you know, and, and I don't know. I like growing roots. So I, I think everybody should grow more roots. Yeah, I, he agreed. It's uh, they've, there's, there's definitely a flashiness to the, to the salads, but um, you know, at the end of the day, there's, you know, you're, you're gonna, the potatoes, the, the beets, um, rutabagas, the garlic, the onions, you know, those are, those are things that you can produce, you know, I'm going to say tonnage of and, uh, do it pretty efficiently if you, if you really kind of want to. And, uh, I I don't know, I see the greens and, and greens look really, really labor intensive to me and, and the roots just don't, they don't, I don't see that in the roots. So I, I agree you know, run with the roots. I, you know, that's, that's kind of been some of our bread and butter crop. Um, and I, I, it's, it's too bad if people are skimming over it because I think it, uh, at the end of the day, I I do enjoy a salad. Um, but, uh, you know, the right next to my steak is, is my, uh, is my baked potato. So, (laughs) you know, where my heart lies. You both had some great closing thoughts. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I think you make a good, inspiring message for becoming a root crop farmer. Mm-hmm. Oh, we didn't even rehearse that. That's the best part. Yeah, I know. Well, thank you both for coming on today and sharing your thoughts and experience and letting people learn from what you've gone through. If a listener wanted to see photos of your farm or get in touch, do you both have social media or websites? Yeah, we do. We're on, uh, we've got a website, blue sky vegetable, blue sky veg.com V E G. And then, uh, on Instagram also at blue sky veg. Yeah, we're, we're on Facebook, uh, Waldner farms, uh, on Facebook and then, uh, Instagram and my, my wife runs all that stuff. So I'm not as, I'm not as up with it as I am, but she does a really good job of, of keeping everything up to date and kind of what we got ready and available. And um, yeah, that's the best way to get a hold of us. So great. Well, thank you very much. I'm hopefully you've inspired some other South Dakota growers and maybe we'll see a few more doing root crops this summer. And thanks also for our listeners for tuning in to the South Dakota Specialty Producers Association podcast. Until next time, keep growing.